Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, as part of the Irish Studies series, a paper by Professor Brian O'Connor, an Associate Professor of Irish Language and Literature at the University of Notre Dame. His paper was entitled Charting the River Shannon in 18th Century Irish Verse. Today's talk focuses on Priavchroch Éireann, Ireland's principal river. It's a local descriptive work from 1794 and amongst the longest secular poems in the Irish language. But much less known than Court of Anihe, the Midnight Court, composed approximately 14 years earlier in 1780, although Brendan O'Bokla disputed that date, or Crina Art Ilira, the Lament for Art O'Leary, which was composed, performed or recited some 21 years earlier in 1773. There's no doubting the importance of these two aforementioned canonical texts which have been edited, translated and critiqued numerous times by a wide variety of scholars. Both texts are stable elements of the Irish language canon and feature prominently in the English language canon. Yet every generation has to be wary of falling into the overse trap of assenting to confirmed canonicity and simply maintaining canonicity at the expense of new readings and new interpretations. It's perfectly logical that Priavchroch Éireann has regrettably been overlooked and undervalued in comparison to Court of Anihe, the Midnight Court, and Crina Arti Lyra, the Lament for Art O'Leary. It may be a longer poem, and still waters may run deep, but as a poem it lacks the sex, the panache, the tension of the other texts. There's no blood drinking, no riderless horses galloping into yards, no sectarian assassinations, no Amazonian bailiffs issuing summons to mysterious midnight gatherings. There's no detailed sex scenes, no public whippings of naked poets, no asides on clerical celibacy or anything else to excite a listener or wake a snoozing undergraduate from their slumber. Prefra Aaron is a prosaic 1,357-line poem that traces the River Shannon from its sources to where it enters the Atlantic Ocean on Ireland's western coast. It lacks both the titillation, drama, humour and bawdiness contained in Court and Van Iha, and the passion, grief and sense of injustice inherent in Crina Arti Lyra. It also lacks the controversy created by the furnace of criticism attached to these texts. Whether Crina Arti Lyra is an oral text or a literary production. Whether the Midnight Court is the result of native inspiration or European influence. Nor has Prefroch Aaron ever been banned or censored. The role of controversy and censorship cannot be underestimated in elevating a text to the official canon, especially an Irish language text in relation to the Anglo-American literary canon. Prif Hroch Aaron, in contrast, is sedentary in nature and uncontroversial in theme. Some might say dull and boring and therefore a perfect topic for a Thursday morning talk. But at stake here are issues of communication, 
access to intellectual developments, and the role of Romanticism, colonialism, empire building, and modernity in late 18th century Irish language poetry. It raises fundamental questions about the transfer of knowledge between the metropolitan centres such as Paris, London and Dublin and the margins, in this case Roscommon, and the changing face of the Irish landscape at the close of the 18th century, as well as literary and generic borrowings. If Merriman's Midnight Court speaks to every generation as regards the eternal struggle between the sexes, and addresses issues of equality, sexual behaviour, chastity and promiscuity, then a case can be made for Prívhroch Éireann as an 18th century poem that speaks to 21st century ecological and environmental concerns. It does so in the face of impending modernisation and the onset of modernity, not only in its ambition to retrieve, define, maintain and organise specific aspects of landscape and oral culture, but in its ethical presumption that a specific language is a prerequisite for natural places. Only access to and awareness of such language, this poem suggests, permits us to speak clearly about such places and allows the kind of intimacy with such places from which arises an environmental concern and ethical stewardship. In this regard, our poet-scribe Michal O'Brenon shares common ground with Derek Watkin, Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwartney's recent efforts to produce counter-desecration texts. We might therefore, I propose, consider Prívhroch Éireann as an eco-literary counter-desecration poem in linguistic and topology terms. But we might also look to English river poetry, a minor genre of 18th century poetry, as a possible source. Prívhroch Éireann is contained in manuscript 23b27 of the Royal Irish Academy. At 1,357 lines, it is, to be, it is considered among the longest secular poems in the Irish language, surpassing the Midnight Court by some 300 lines. Its subject matter is the Shannon River. The metre, Arto Moel Fowl notes, is a simpler version, lacking the internal rhyme of that used by Merriman and Dunnaka Rua a Clare poet, who may have immigrated to Newfoundland in 17, between 1745 and 1755 and recounted his experiences in Achja, Gila and Auron. What the three texts share, I suggest, is a spatial mapping or a metaphor metaphorical imagination of a new space, a physical space, an emotional space, moral space, sexual space, radically altered from its current or impending configuration. Each text, in its own way and in its own context, calls for a reordering of the dominant order, social, moral, linguistic or imperial. And in doing so, these poems offer far more than the critique of the reality that confronts them. They offer an alternative. Rising in northwest County Cavan, the River Shannon travels south 240 miles, never more than 250 feet above sea level, before entering the Atlantic Ocean through an estuary below Limerick City. The river, home to over a dozen lakes and hundreds of small islands, drains an area of approximately 6,060 square miles, 
It touches or runs through 11 of the 32 counties. To put this in context, there are over 38 rivers in the United States that are at least 500 miles long. And even at a total length of 240 miles, the Shannon is, however, as the poem states at the very, very outset, the longest river in Ireland or Britain. Despite this, it fails to rank amongst the top 20 longest European rivers. Its significance, nonetheless, however, was captured eloquently by Isaac Weld in his 1832 Statistical Survey of County Roscommon for the Royal Dublin Society, where he comments, On the whole face of the globe, probably no river exists of so large a size in proportion to that of the island through which it flows as the Shannon. First edited by Eamon O'Toole, who replaced uh, T.F. O'Rahilly in 1929 as Professor of Irish here at UCD, for H6 Part 3 in spring 1951, the text was again edited in 1994 by Arthur Moel Fowle as Limerick Corporation celebrated the poem's 200th anniversary. It's not surprising that two experts on place names would edit Prefroch Aaron, as the text has a profusion of riches for scholars of toponymy, approximately 500 place names. The earliest reference to the poem that I can locate is an 1839 reference by John O'Donovan, who refers to as the course of this river is very well described in a poem on the Shannon, written in Irish by Mr. Michael Brannan of Lisgobbin in the year 1794. When working in Roscommon, or on Roscommon, the place names of Roscommon, on the 9th of July, 1839, O'Donovan writes that he found a copy of the poem in Hardyman's papers and describes it as this laborious and most accurate piece of topographical poetry by an extraordinary man, but in private, however, O'Donovan doubts that Hardiman will ever fulfil his promise to have the entire poem copied and sent to him. O'Donovan, however, translates a large portion of the poem himself, especially the section pertaining to Lochree. It would be an overstatement to say that an aura of mystery surrounds Michael Brennan, Michal O'Brenon's life. We have very, very little detail with which to paint the man or his background. Where he was born, his family, where he was educated, where he died. We know little of his political or religious views or his role, if any, in the 1798 rebellion. The absence of a biographical context, however, should not deter us, but rather allows room for a more imaginative response to the challenges posed by a lack of factual knowledge. The little we do know of O'Brenon is based on manuscript 23b27 in the Royal Irish Academy, and Brino Cleave has pointed out that we're uncertain if O'Brenon was the author and scribe, or just scribe who rewrote, who copied out the original poem. Based on the poem's level of detail, this elusive figure clearly knew Roscommon, Leitrim, and the area south to Loch Ree. South of Athlone, however, he is less detailed and admits his uncertainty of Loch Darachart uh, in line 232, bearing out his claim that he knew Connacht very, very well, but wasn't so sure further south. 
At the poem's conclusion, he identifies himself not once but twice as Michal O'Brenon living at Lisgobon, three miles northeast, northeast of Roscommon town in the year 1794. He clearly had a familiarity with classical studies, some knowledge of Latin and Greek, as well as a command of English and Irish. And as Art Dumwell Fowle has written, uh, O'Brenon had 37 students from Roscommon Town hinterland under his care between, Mar- between January and March of 1796. We can only guess as to how O'Brenon acquired his information of the place names and locations further afield from Roscommon. His information may be based on boatmen, maps or personal experience, but we will never know for certain if O'Brien stood on Tolman Bridge in Limerick or saw saw the Shannon enter the Atlantic at Loop Head. Was he an itinerant schoolmaster who travelled Ireland or possibly an informant for Charles Valency or Charles O'Connor? How or where did he acquire his copy of O'Brien's dictionary? And what access did he have to contemporary maps and geographical studies and surveys? The poem raises more questions than answers, but perhaps the value lies in the pursuit and the propositions and postulations that result. At the poem's conclusion, the poet links himself to Lisgobbin and Schliabona, the last refuge of the Fir of Bullock, the highest mountain in South Roscommon. Based on the 1749 census of Elphin, commissioned at the request of Bishop Edward Singh, Church of Ireland, and grandfather of the playwright John Milton Singh, there is a Roger Brennan, a papist, residing in Castleman, Kilbride, a married labourer with one papist child under 14 and one over 14. That's as close as we can come to identifying a possible identity for this poet. In 1797, O'Brienon compiled a long Irish version of Torres and Christia, Stations of the Cross. And in a letter to the Reverend Dr. Charles MacDermott, he complains that the full fee is still outstanding. Quote, when the people agreed with me, just for a guinea, about performing the translation of that piece of work into Irish, and to have it in English characters... And, sir, I declare to your reverence that I would have had two guineas earned by my little school, which I dropped in respect of the same affair. Little is known of this Charles MacDermott, but an examination of the clergy lists of Elfin that that came to light in the Vatican archive in the 1990s suggests that he may be the Franciscan friar Charles MacDermott, who served as parish priest in Kilocken. Devotions to the Stations of the Cross, based on medieval pilgrimages, spread rapidly throughout the Roman Catholic world in the 18th century, mainly due to the Franciscans, who had gained custody of Jerusalem's sacred sites in 1343. In 1726, Pope Benedict XIII extended the indulgences to the general faithful, which Pope Innocent XI had previously, in 1686, exclusively granted to the Franciscans and their third order. That was, the right to build stations and earn the same indulgences as visiting Jerusalem's sacred sites. In 1731, Pope Clement XII allowed all churches, not just the Franciscans, all churches, to have stations of the cross, and fixed the number of stations at 14. 
And in 1742, Benedict XIV urged every church to enrich its sanctuary with Stations of the Cross. Two Franciscans of this era did much to spread the Pope's wishes. Saint Leonard of Port Maurice, who erected 571 sets of stations between 1731 and 1751, and Saint Alphonsus Liguori, the founder of the Redemptorist Order, who in 1787, we're getting closer and closer to the, the, the relevant date, in 1787 wrote the most popular version of the Stations of the Cross. On the 6th of August, 1797, Bishop French of Elphin was permitted by the Pope to grant all indulgences already granted to confraternities, confraternities to the, uh, of the most holy sacrament and of the Christian doctrine with the Archdiocese of Dublin. In the same year, 1797, we find our poet O'Brenon complaining about the lack of payment for translation for a text pertaining to the Stations of the Cross. That was rather long-winded, but we may ex uh, abstract several points from this. The document reached Ireland and Elfin quickly. It was translated rapidly, and O'Brenon was amongst the first translators approached by the clergy. This speaks to a reputation and standing as a scholar amongst the clergy. The fact that the religious document required translation into Irish in English characters speaks to the linguistic vernacular of Roscommon and Elfin at the close of the 18th century, and draws attention to Whitley Stokes' estimate that in 1806 only 20,000 could read Irish out of a population of 1.5 million speakers. Those figures don't tally. It also lends credence to Nilo Kielson's argument concerning literacy in Roman rather than Gaelic script in pre-revival Irish-speaking districts. In addition to this letter of complaint about lack of payment, and we don't know, as Bruno Cueve points out, if the letter was ever sent, nor do we know if the translation was completed or delivered, there is a pastoral letter dated the 1st of April 1798 by Bishop Edmund French that was to be read in all churches in Elfin Diocese on the 15th of April 1798, and the French invasion was just around the corner. The letter, the pastoral letter warns, as a caution to the people, the time being so horribly troublesome then, that they're to have no involvement with Quakers or with French people, strangers in the locality. Bruno Cleave, who edited this letter in H11 Part 1 in 1964, notes there's no evidence that O'Brien ever translated this text. The scribe, however, in both instances, and presumably the translator, is Michal O'Brien. And while not a direct translation, O'Cleave is correct in pointing out that it conveys the original sense and meaning effectively and accurately, and displays an ability for coining new phrases and terms. Among the most compelling of the assorted letters contained in the manuscript, which Omwell Fowle uh, assumes were never posted, is a verbose offer in English to assist the profound and celebrated Miss Anne Brooks of Granard in the publication of Oceanic Lays and Irish Poetry. The author modestly refers to himself as follows, underlining his expertise in the area of Connacht and his ability to provide, prepare or translate material. Quote, Nor is there any man existing 
that has better opportunity of collecting more of the Fenian poems. I being so well acquainted throughout the whole space of the province of Connacht, which seems to be the chief place in the nation at present for finding such curious relations. And therefore, if you seem to require a person of such parts and capacity to provide, prepare or transcribe any drafts, poems or pieces, alluding to your judicious translations, it is not possible that any other person can answer your purpose superior to me. The letter implies an awareness that the recipient is interested in Irish language material and also in translating and transcribing the same material and has also translated presumably and published some translations. It remains conjecture, however, how O'Brienon could be aware of her judicious translations unless he participated in English language print culture, which raises the issue of print circulation in Roscommon in, late 18, in the late 18th century. This lady, Artemwell Fowl, takes to be Charlotte Brooke, born approximately 1740 in Rantavon, Cavan, and best known today as the author of Relics of Irish Poetry, 1788. Homeschooled, she immersed herself in history and literature from an early age. As part of the first Protestant Anglo-Irish generation to interest themselves in Irish language literature and Irish history, she acquired the Irish language from estate labourers in Cavan and Kildare, where her family had moved in 1758. She translated various Irish language pieces into English. One of her earliest efforts by Carolyn appeared in Joseph Cooper Walker's 1786 Historical Memoirs of the Irish Bards. Brooke wrote Relics of Irish Poetry in 1788. The 1789 edition, with a print run of 360 copies, appeared in quarto volume, published in Dublin by subscription at a cost of three crowns. In 1795, Bolligan however, published a collection of choice songs translated by Miss Brooke, and this may be a more probable source but raises further questions regarding circulation and print culture, and further underlines what Lisa Nivonila refers to as the three-way interaction between print culture, oral culture and the manuscript tradition in 18th century Ireland. It also raises issues about the date of composition. In addition, there's a verse in both English and Irish addressed to Miss Brooks. I'll do it in Irish first and then the accompanying English. A oiga vorga glunruk green, tossed for or the dalen. Far frastal glick, mas mean lat all, tau misha os love gan tag vol. There's a nice pun there between the love and the tag vol. The translation, which is also in the text. Notorious maiden, esteemed learned Miss Brooks, renowned for wit and perfect still in looks. If you be curious to imply a sage, as subassistant, me, you may engage. In this context, Prifhroch Aaron may be considered as, albeit a lot of long testimony, to O'Brienon's skill and accomplishment in traditional Irish lore. Were O'Brienon attempting to convince Charlotte Brooke to imply him as a translator and or a purveyor and collector of Irish poetry from oral sources in Connacht, it's feasible that she would request some evidence of his ability. 
Pre-Fro-Aaron would, in this instance, demonstrate not only a familiarity with Irish, but with rhyme, metre, din shamachas, folklore and history. Alternatively, this text might be a late, a very, very late example of din shamachas, a genre of early Irish literature narrating and explaining the origins of place names and traditions concerning events and characters associated with the places in question. As Petra Helmuth explains, the use of onomastics in medieval Irish literature, whereby a text could be linked to locations known to the audience to make that text more immediate and interesting, became increasingly prominent in Irish narrative during the 11th and 12th centuries. The genre found its highest expression in a single collection known as the Dinyanicus, the traditional lore of inanimate places, compiled sometime in the 12th century. But the lateness of the date here makes it unlikely that this poem is an effort to rework Din Shamachus. And Nulligomorila's essay in Gaelic Ireland, published by Four Courts in 2001, deals with later examples of Din Shamachus. I won't go into them here. Catherine McKenna of Harvard University's recent work on the rise of the cult of saints in 18th century Ireland as a direct response to the changing relationship, that is, a simpler, more economic-based relationship between landlords and their land with their tenants, may also shed light on the poet's use of place names. As McKenna argues in a forthcoming essay, One effect of the remaking of the landscape was to decontextualise the important and sacred places that had belonged to a people. And well cults in the 18th century served to reclaim, resacralise and reoccupy a landscape that had been remade by its new masters. The need to reconsecrate and repossess the land, combined with the need to practice the religion that was rapidly becoming more and more a badge of identity and differentiation in a setting other than the church, since these no longer belonged to the Catholics. But the penal laws were largely redundant by the time of composition of our poem. Were O'Brainall attempting to impress Charlotte Brooke with his knowledge, poetic skill and command of language, why invest so much time and effort? Surely he could have conveyed his ability in 100, 200 or even 300 lines. A thousand lines plus seems somewhat excessive, if not immoderate, even for a verbose Roscommon man. If we accept that the text was composed in 1794, although Binchy does give 1793 as a possible date, the same year that William Blake published Songs of Experience and the year the Orientalist William Jones died, it places it firmly in the Romantic period, when many writers and their texts exhibited interrelated patterns of migrant thought and behaviour. Many of the writers of the Romantic period thought and wrote about selfhood, spatial position and the power of the imagination and of empirical observation to help individuals and communities orient themselves within a world that they understood was disunited and still dividing. It's a truism that in the late 18th century everyone lived in the province of the metropolitan centre where London was the epicentre of a new global economy and cultural market. But if London was the centre, the boundaries were in flux and rarely stable or permanent. 
In the early 18th century, the Jacobites rebelled repeatedly in Scotland. The French attempted an invasion of Wales in 1707, and in 1796, the French with Wolfe Tone were off the coast of Bantry Bay and would land in Killala in 1798. As the literature of the Romantic migrations shows, the minds and bodies were forever turning inward, towards national state, towards locality, and towards mental interiors, but also extended outward into international and global spaces that shook and transformed the Romantic self. If it was an Amazonian bailiff with her whereas warrant, that disrupted Merriman's tranquil snooze in the banks of Loch Graney in County Clare. It was the grinding of modernity in the construction of canals and lock gates that reverberated around O'Brainon's ears on the banks of Loch Ree. From a vantage point on Shreve Bourne, one can see across almost the entire width of Ireland, from Croke Patrick on the west coast to the Old Castle Hills in the east, approximately 150 miles given perfect conditions. This location would have afforded our port O'Brainon an impressive view of the Shannon, and more importantly, I'd argue, of the changes and developments occurring along the course of the river. He would certainly have seen and heard the encroach of modernity as it developed Ireland's rivers, lakes and waterways, and constructed canals and lock gates for commercial gain and profit. The construction of canals linking the Shannon with Limerick, Dublin and Belfast was driven by a desire to improve landscapes and modernise agrarian spaces while maximising revenue concerns, revenue returns. Colonial officials had long fantasised about controlling and subjugating the wilderness beyond the pale and bringing it further and more completely within Dublin Castle's compass and control. To this end, they mapped, surveyed, bounded, recorded and named the landscape in the hope of moulding this wild space and developing it through science, capital and imperial imagination. Lord Deputy Strafford proposed linking the Shannon, Brosna, Barrow and Bine rivers in 1683. This suggestion was but the first of many schemes and numerous plans to make the Shannon more navigable and to link the Shannon to Dublin. Time today doesn't allow to me to mention each individual plan, but they are extensively detailed in Ruth Delaney's 2008 The Shannon Navigation by Lilliput Press. Relevant to, the, to today's topic is the marked concentration of projects in the 30-year period between 1755 and 1785 with the construction of lateral canals, lock houses and bridges. By the 1790s, after many false starts and numerous delays, both the Limerick Navigation Company and the Grand Canal Company were sufficiently confident in their progress to express concern about the state of earlier canals on the Middle and Upper Shannon. The first chart of the Shannon initially was published in 1773 and republished in 1795. As we approach the end of the 18th century and our date of composition, 1794, there is a marked and significant intensification of rhetoric regarding the development of the Shannon as a waterway for commercial gain. 
1794, the high sheriffs and juries of the counties of Roscommon, Leitrim, Mayo, Galway, Clare, Limerick, King's County, that's Offaly, and Tipperary, resolved that the completing of the navigation of the River Shannon and the Great Lakes adjoining hereto, from Loch Allen to Limerick, will tend effectively to improve and open the home and foreign markets to the produce of more than two million acres of land in the heart of the kingdom. And the execution of this great navigation will effectively advance the commerce, manufactures, agricultures and population of this kingdom and the consequent strength of the empire at large. The 16th and 17th century plantations had transformed the human and cultural landscape, but the agrarian conquest remained incomplete. The imagined ideal of an Ireland commercially integrated was persistently disturbed by the reality of poor roads, inadequate transport, long distance to market and the unreliable supply of service and goods. The construction of canals would mark the transition from the past to the present, from backwardness to progress, and as the High Sheriffs argued, the execution of this great navigation will effectively advance the commerce, manufactures, agricultures and population of this kingdom and the consequent strength of the empire at large. This project was to be the birth of a new commercially viable and fully integrated Irish kingdom. The idea of connecting Dublin to the Shannon was proposed as early as 1715, and in 1757 the Irish Parliament granted Thomas Omer 20,000 Irish pounds to start construction of what would become the Grand Canal. The canal from Salins was finally opened to traffic in 1779, with a twice-weekly passenger service to Dublin starting in 1780. Robertstown opened in 1784, Atai by 1791, Dangan, then Phillipstown, in 1797. Persistent delays, however, prompted a rival venture, the Ryle Canal, which started construction in 1790. Again, we're getting closer and closer to our data composition. Passing through Minute, Kilcock, Enfield, Mullingar and Ballymahan, with a spur to Longford opening in 1817. The Boyne Navigation Company began construction of a canal linking Old Bridge to Slane in 1748 and was completed in the 1760s. This canal brought grain and flour from mills along the river to the port of Drogheda and coal in the opposite direction. The Tyrone Navigation, begun in 1733, opened in 1787 and facilitated the transport of coal from the Tyrone coalfields to Dublin. The first attempt at a canal linking the Shannon to the River Erne and Belfast was made in 1780 along the Woodford River from Beltubret to Ballyconnell. And part of this, scheme, this was part of a scheme to improve navigation from Ballyshannon to the lower Loch Erne through to the upper Loch Erne. Construction of the Strabant Canal began in late 71 and the junction with the file was finally finished in 1795. It would, this was thus, it would thus be an important section of a great waterway which crossed Ireland from north to south, Belfast to Limerick, and which would complete a similar link formed by the Grand Canal and the Ryle Canal further to the south. The project, however, stalled in 1794. 
Projects such as these required mapping and surveying of rivers, islands, bogs and plains. But this was a terrain, this terrain was no virgin landscape, divide of a people, a language or a memory. In Britain and Ireland at this time, cartographers produced contemporary maps that overtly promoted the interests of the wealthy and socially powerful. These are county maps, or maps derived from them, that mapmakers sold by subscription to landowners, who then appeared more prominently than their neighbours who had neglected to subscribe. Such maps promoted an idea of a well-ordered physical and social nation with an institutional architecture or an institutional topographic marking which provided orientation and direction. English cartographic practice was, by the third quarter of the 18th century, overtaking the much-respected French technique of the mid-18th century, building on the work of Wallet, Debris, Rennell and Arrowsmith the Elder. And cartographic practices in Ireland and Scotland expediated these changes. By the end of the 18th century, civilian and contracted labour in cartography was still very, very common. But European states increasingly expected specifically trained military officers to organise and lead mapping projects. The manifest results, William O'Reilly writes, of this militarisation of cartography are the national systematic surveys instituted throughout Europe after 1790. The militarisation of cartography was a fundamental element in the state's increasing ability to marshal and control its resources. In the Irish context, Charles Valency's military work, and in particular his military itinerary of the south of Ireland, 1796, illustrates the centrality of surveying and mapping to late Enlightenment concepts of military science and thus their centrality to the education of junior officers beyond the rudiments of military lore and drill. British administrators and surveyors promoted the idea of systematic mapping in an attempt to both reinforce and legitimate the conceptual image of the empire. By creating an imperial space in whatever local context, Connacht or Bangladesh, Surveyors enabled a process whereby diversity was reduced to a rational and ultimately controllable structure. In the mid to late 18th century, an intrinsic relationship between knowledge of territory and ability to control that space developed and marks a significant shift in colonial thinking. It was deemed necessary, O'Reilly argues, to reduce information and observations to standardised techniques. And this information was then relayed to the heart of the empire, where it was classified, stored and analysed. Mapping and surveying became central to this exercise of power. And the approach to empire was derived not from the acts of war, but from the county houses. Slips of paper rather than shot and cannon. Slide rulers rather than blades of swords. This colonial nature of, of power naturalised certain names and privileged, privileged certain occasions and events over others, leading to a transformation of Western forms of homogeny and an application of Western models of science, philosophy and religion in various parts of the empire. And that draws heavily on William O'Reilly's work. 
Our text today, then, emerges from a society that is being opened up, transformed, dissected and reimagined in a different language. Modernity is connecting and encompassing former far-flung regions and bringing them into an intimate and close commercial and financial relationship. In the final quarter of the 18th century, there are colonial visions of the Shannon as a north-south waterway and of the Grand Canal and Ryle Canal as an east-west route transversing Ireland. Limerick, Belfast, Dublin and Athlone would be connected by trade, commerce and human interactions. Coal, grain, corn, food and humans would travel along the canals and rivers at a much quicker and economical rate than ever before. Such developments in transport and speed also came at risks. If produce could travel from rural Ireland to the capital quicker than ever before, so could French troops who would land on the West Coast. The issue of maps comes to the fore in Prefra Erin at the close of the poem, just as the poet has identified himself as Michal O'Brainon and linked himself to Roscommon. This would seem to be a natural conclusion to the poem only for several additional verses that discuss the antiquity of the Irish language and the importance of Irish as a primal language and its relevance for decoding place names in other languages. In the final 25 verses, the poet takes issues, issue with the corrupt anglicisation of place names and in particular with the corruption of Ceann Lame in, uh, in County Clare as Loop Head. This marks an important transition in the poem. Having related the, the origins of Lupeg, Kjaun Lema, he takes issue with recent cartographers who labelled this physical feature as Lupeg. An, an examination of 18th century maps bears out the poet's contention. In particular, he seems to be taking issue with recent maps by Thomas Kitchen, in particular his 1788 map, which is one of the first, not the first, but one of the first maps to mark what we now call Loop Head as Loop Head rather than Town Lema. With one exception, all previous maps in the 18th century mark that area as Town Lema in English. Kitchen is the second map to mark it as loop head in English only. These concluding verses are among the most unusual and interesting in the entire poem, altering the focus from the Shannon to a wider European intellectual debate on the origins and antiquity of language, but advising the controversies of Japet and the 72 languages and the Tower of Babel, although promising to reveal all in a future forthcoming book. We don't know what happened to the promised, the promised book, but why include this section here at the conclusion of a poem on place names on the River Shannon? The reason, I believe, has to do with the very nature and the form of the poem itself, and how subsequent forms of representation have clouded our ability to read this poem in its 18th century context. We're accustomed to seeing languages expressed in the format of a tree. The family tree of European languages, the family tree of Indo-European languages. 
This notion of a tree of languages finds first expression in the writings of James Howell, a royalist imprisoned in the fleet during the most troubled years of 1642 to 1651. And in letter 58 of his writings, the metaphor of a tree of languages appears fully developed, short of being what we expect from a professional linguist. Subsequently, this metaphor was given an entirely new meaning by Darwin, who frames species and stresses the movement from the simplest to the most complex. But prior to Darwin and prior to William Jones in 1786, and specifically in the 18th century, the tree metaphor was only one choice of metaphor for describing language relationships. The other was the river of languages. And the metaphor of the river was so common as to be ubiquitous. If we consider this idea of motion in the tree metaphor, it privileges the proximity of the various languages from one another and their relative distance, their development from the original language, moving from the simplest to the more complex, from post-Babel back to the source. The more, distance you, more distant you are, the more developed you are. The metaphor of the river, however, construes progress in the opposite direction. It presents each individual language or stream contributing to the original language, the language of the pre-Tower of Babel, the language of the Garden of Eden. The notion of movement and direction is reversed. It's an issue of orientation and perceived outcome. The river metaphor is orientated on locating the mother language of Eden, the language of paradise, the pre-Babel language, and tracing the source. The tree metaphor is about progress and related development. This, I believe, is the key for understanding this text. Understanding a river as a metaphor for the language, we, ha we have a different understanding of the opening lines, which read, Pre fra Aaron is umlan inchi, all a bratten nasar frunsi, shunan ilanok nagal town, naloch nalush namrak is the Naskan, the principal river of Ireland, and of all the beautiful islands of Britain, of the great princes, is the islanded shannon of the bright waves, of the locks, of the pike, of the trout, and of the eels. Unlike the typical Renaissance poem that challenges other nations in its closing verses to produce a river of equal quality, our poet asserts the shannon's supremacy at the beginning of the poem and at the conclusion again asserts the Irish language's supremacy based on the place names along the river over other languages. Rather than the expected trope of a challenge to other nations to match the Shannon in terms of volume, size, beauty or power, the reader is asked to name a language that surpasses the Irish language for antiquity, prowess or heritage. Not only is the Shannon the principal river and the longest river of Ireland, England, Scotland or Wales, its language is the principal and oldest language on these islands. And the key to understanding the place names of the various countries is the Irish language. Here, literary form becomes the message. Text and form merge. Poetry is the highest artistic form. The Shannon is the longest river, and Irish is the oldest language. 
In narrating the history of the river, its places, its culture, the poet is attesting to the antiquity of the Irish language. At a time of upheaval in European linguistics, with rapid change occurring the length and breadth of the river, O'Brainon produces a text that asserts the river's antiquity and primacy in cultural terms. The Shannon this poem contends is minutely and extensively known to its long-term residents, and it dramatises a truism about belonging, about intimacy with a place. The new names assigned by English cartographers, such as Loop Head, are arbitrarily chosen, little more than points of orientation, rather than emerging over time from a natural convergence of human, human culture with a particular place. This 18th century poem comes from an observation about modern loss and belonging with which, which many of us can identify at the beginning of the 21st century. I'll conclude with this. The cartographers saw themselves working on a landscape empty of people, unencumbered by the past and unfettered by social rigidities. They were convinced that the land could be cleared, settled, named and ordered. But in doing so, they were unaware or choose to ignore that they were operating on a landscape or a waterscape in this case that was already inscribed. Embedded landscapes are never erased with ease or emptied of people, or reinscribed without problems and challenges. Spaces are not as malleable as modernist minds would imagine. In O'Brainon's text, we have a rebuttal of an Enlightenment effort to rename the waterscape, and instead we have an assertion of the primacy, not only of the Shannon and its heritage, but of an, but an, an accomplished claim for the primacy of the Irish language as the oldest language in Britain and Ireland, and the key for the place names in Ireland and beyond. This artistic combination of ideology, political message with poetic craft deserves more attention than it has hitherto received. Not only is this the longest secular poem perhaps in Irish, a treasure trove of place names in detail, but it speaks to the arrival of modernity in Ireland and the clash of cultures in a way few other texts do, so eloquently or so artistically, in forging associations between history places and weaving them together into a coherent, rhymed narrative. I don't claim that this is a two-court a river poem or that all its central strategies are related to this form of writing. But I do seek to show that certain generic features associated with the English river poem genre are prominent in the workings of this rich and complex poem, and therefore a clue to its imaginative genetics. As Oroch makes clear, river poems constituted a recognisable genre with well-marked themes and conventions, mostly associated with marriage as an emblem of concord, and were still written and composed in the final quarter of the 18th century. That is not to say that this poem has no other sources, models or conventions. It's simply to indicate one substantial tradition underpinning the metaphors implied here. O'Brainon shapes the poem so that it transcends mere guidebook status. Other aspects would certainly repay consideration, but sp space and time forbid such inquiry here. I'll finish by saying that the poem functions in a more rewarding and inward fashion that has been generally recognised. Yes, O'Brainon certainly gives us abundant documentation of Irish life. 
But the interest of Prevhrot Aaron is not confined to the place names or geographic detail it provides. The poem deploys its resources, the resources available to a great imaginative writer, and it supplies less a map of the Shannon as a vision of the Irish language in a wider European linguistic context. Shane Gramagov.